0: Welcome to the Over and Back Classic NBA podcast. I am Jason and uh, had had a chance to uh, talk to uh, the great uh, Sam Smith, of course, uh, best known probably as the author of The Jordan Rules and a longtime reporter. And we got a chance to talk about his latest book, which is called Hard Labor The Battle That Birthed the Billion Dollar NBA. documents the labor battles between the nba and its players in the 60s and 70s and offer, also offers background about who they were what they were fighting against what they sacrificed and ultimately what they won and so forth so some great stuff with uh, uh archie clark john Havlicek, sam jones wes unseld chet walker tommy heinson elgin baylor you know lots of good stuff that um you know, that i didn't know about it was cool to have all of uh sort of the labor history of the nba in one book it works both as as that and as just uh you know some really good stories about some people so uh sam uh share some great stories here on the podcast there's a lot more of course in the uh, book and, uh, unfortunately, a little bit of the recording was lost because we had uh, not the best connection. It, the connection is a little bit iffy here and there, but you, I, I edited it, I think, well enough that you'll be able to uh, understand everything that was said and get to enjoy the uh, conversation, even if a few of uh, Sam's stories got lost there in the shuffle. So, anyway, hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. So you you only not only do you document those labor battles, but you offer background about many of those players. You know who, who they were, uh, what they were fighting against. You know what they sacrificed, and ultimately, you know the victories that they were able to won. That you know led led to the NBA of today. Uh, what made you want to write this book?
2: Over the years, and traveling around, and uh, being around the league, and um, and I've gotten to know, and I'm always interested in history. History of the United States and the NBA history of sports and most fans, you know, baseball especially where I grew up in New York City was a big sport then and history of the game. And I always felt that the NBA history was kind of overlooked. So I I kind of did uh, sort of a, you know, two-pronged thing. One is I wanted to tell this story, which is sort of, you know, marginally known. You've mentioned the Robertson suit. Uh, a lot of people in basketball have heard of it, but they don't really know what it's about. And um, make a make an appeal uh, to the players of this current era, um, and especially particularly because of the tremendous uh, revenue coming into the league now, um, to recognize these players and, and maybe do something for them because a lot of them, I do need help. In fact, one of those players called me today uh, asking, you know, for, you know, just a couple hundred dollars and um, to try to help him with that. And and then also for the sort of general reader, I kind of, I, I, you know, I kind of made it because people, I guess, sort of get turned off by labor and you know, sports labor and I made it kind of an NBA history from 57 to 76, which I kind of consider the sort of beginning of the modern NBA. Most people say, well, Bird and Magic in 79, but it really was the ABA's entrance. And uh, with the merger in 76, bringing in Dr. J and Gervin and David Thompson and all these high flyers that really changed the NBA. Um, and then Bird and Magic took the baton and passed the, you know, and moved it and passed it to Jordan. But, you know, sort of telling the, the story of that formative history. And then and the way to do it, was through the people who who lived it, and in these these 14 plaintiffs, I decided, you know, starting with Oscar Robertson, uh, to tell their stories as sort of the stories of the NBA from that era. Because, you know, as players and and participants in this labor action, which was really the first in sports and and probably the most significant, you know, this preceded the Curt Flood case. Um, it really was the impetus for um, baseball free agency. Uh, It was was the first labor union in sports, essentially. This was the only uh, labor union to to challenge uh, the the sport in court and in Congress, as they did. Um, And it didn't have to be that. You know, what, what the NBA players have now in economics, which is so generous, uh, for instance, the NFL players don't have, and it, it didn't have to be that way, but the NBA players stood up, and you know they got guaranteed contracts, and they got things that the football players couldn't get because football players uh, never, never uh, fought, and, and actually, uh, there was a backroom deal cut uh, with the AFL-NFL merger. Uh, Russell Long, the senator from which I talk about, the senator from Louisiana, uh, basically uh, bribed uh, the NFL bribed him. Uh, he said you give me a franchise in Louisiana which became the New Orleans Saints and I'll ignore the labor, the antitrust laws and uh, allow this merger. Well, basketball when, they, when the NBA tried that the basketball players stood up and, he, and these were players without guaranteed contracts making an average of like $18,000, $19,000 uh, essentially risking their careers. Now, you know, Oscar and Wilson, they weren't going to you know, be fired. But, you, you know, there was more than that. Mel Counts and Don Koges and, uh, you know, a number of uh, other guys. So it really was a way to sort of tell a history of the league uh, and then this story and then maybe open some eyes to players of the current year to say, you know what, these guys put their careers on the line. They didn't benefit. Maybe we'll do something for them.
0: So you've um you know obviously been a you're a veteran NBA reporter for um, for a few decades, and you've been around, you know a lot of uh, stories about you know the contemporary and the past NBA, I'm sure. Um, were there any stories that you found in you know t- talking to a lot of the older players or you know doing digging into doing the reporting that you know were really you know, surprising to you?,
2: yeah, absolutely. It was extraordinary stories. I, I mean tell people I'm, I'm very excited about this book. And I say, I'll say, and and I would do that too. I said, if you if you can't find a hundred things in this book that you say, wow, I didn't know that, and I'll I'll give you a free book or I'll give you your money back. It, it's it's it, it, it is so much extraordinary stuff that we sort of take for granted, and the players as well. And the point I make about the players really is because is they always call it. I remember always players say it, you know, especially the media people like me, well, you know, you don't understand. We're brothers. You know, we're a family. You know, and yeah, it is a special to be a, 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 a professional athlete. I agree with that. But you know what? Take care of your family and remember what they did. You know, Maurice Stokes, um, for instance, who was paralyzed in a game, uh, with, you know, basically at the time of no health insurance, uh, but was essentially LeBron James in that era. It was a nine guy. Uh, who could take the ball off the backcourt, dribble it full court, and finish. You know, and he ends up – he would have been playing with Oscar Robertson and Wayne Embry and Jack Twyman and um, ends up, uh, you know, paralyzed as a result of his fall during a game. Uh, Nobody taking care of him, no health insurance, no league insurance. His teammate, uh, Jack Twyman, essentially adopts him, even though they weren't even close as, as teammates. Um and then the uh, the league had this annual Kutcher's game to support the Stokes Fund, which is the most amazing thing really in the history of sports. Uh, players used to beg to come to this game. Wilt, who would travel overseas every summer, would fly back from Europe. One time his plane was literally hijacked back in back back in that era, there were hijackers that took planes and crashed them like like uh nine eleven took him, you know, flew to Cuba or whatever, and his plane was hijacked. Day, and it was like that, Elgin Baylor, sitting out a regular season game. He couldn't stay with the team hotel or eat with the team, you know, because it was uh, uh, Jim Crow. But they had neutral games back there, neutral site games, as you called, and they would go to places they thought it would help attendance. And, and you know, to the credit, and NBA wasn't lucrative business then. and In fact, so unlucrative that the Philadelphia owner, Eddie Gottlieb, known as the mogul, very famous owner in NBA history, uh, used to rent a bus to take the players from Philly, say, to New York for a game. And he would sell tickets to fans to ride up and back on the bus with the team. Uh, and, And when they would take cars into New York, he would he would arrange for it that they would get there for seven o'clock game or seven thirty at six because that's when the all uh, the street in New York this, uh parking on the street regulations ended where you could park. So, so or they would they got there five forty five they would drive around until six o'clock when they could park their cars. So I mean stuff is that's just it's it's incredible and then and of course the. Racial stuff, the quota system, and, uh, you know, literally there were – the media was not sympathetic to players in that era. And then I remember uh, I had – and I wrote about it in the book, stories in Sports Illustrated, Sport Magazine, which was very big at the time, um, talking about there's too many blacks in the NBA. It's going to ruin the NBA. And these were big-time stories back then into the late 60s. And so in in a lot of respects – you know these guys also you know, were not recognized that way because you thought pro athletes but these guys were fighting for civil rights as well in that in that great civil rights area era uh against you know obviously you know a corporation corporate sports but also media which was which was not sympathetic to them and was tied in you know very much with the owners and so what these guys did is really extraordinary because I mean, first-round draft picks, top draft picks, okay, there, wasn't, there were no guaranteed contracts. And so these guys took their bosses to court and Congress and to, fight, uh, to fight that merger, you know, and, and all the time knowing that uh, none of them would benefit from it, that, that the free agency they were fighting for would come into effect after all their careers were over. And so that's an impressive thing to do. And then, of course, the, the 64 All-Star Game, which people have heard about, uh, which they were threatening to boycott just to, just to be able to negotiate with the uh, owners who refused ever to talk with them about pensions or benefits or anything. And so you've got Wilt and Elgin and Oscar and West all together, East and West in one room, and Bob Short, the owner of the Lakers, banging on the door, screaming and Elgin and West, saying they're going to kick him out of basketball you know, in incredible circumstances. Um, so, yeah, there were uh, even someone like myself who, who's been around the NBA quite a while and, and his interest in history, I I went around and spent time with each of the plaintiffs. Uh, McCoy McLemore is the only one who's deceased. So 13 of the plaintiffs uh, are alive. And, and so I, I wanted to tell this story through them because they lived it. And also, you know, guys like Havlicek, for instance, he told me, uh, he was making $20,000 in the mid-60s, and um, he he went in and asked for a $5,000 raise. Now, he was an all-star. The Celtics had won multiple titles. He was the best player on the team, hadn't missed a game. And uh, he said, back told him that he's nuts and he might as well retire from basketball. He's never getting $5,000 raise. He said, well, he got 1000 <laughs> So John Havlicek <laughs> at his prime was playing for $21,000.
0: Yeah, that's which is just—it's amazing and amazing how much the you know once the ABA came in and was able to kind of upend the uh, salary structure and and kind of change uh, you know that and with expansion just how much the game you know, change very radically in a very uh, short period of time. And of course, you know, just the, as, as you talked about the media, which was not particularly player sympathetic to begin with, the reaction to that, you know, it, it's fascinating to like kind of look back at, you know, the documentation of the time, you know, what it was written about, what the viewpoints were, and you, and you distill all of that, you know, very well in the book.
2: Yeah, it was. This, it, 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 like you said before, the thing you know, the things you find out
0: which you just unaware, you, know, you don't want of
2: that you just take, you know, take, take for granted. We assume, you know, pro athletes in that time because they were pro athletes, they were treated special, and and they weren't. Now they made more than regular people. Uh, you know, the average salary when the uh, ABA came into uh, effect in '67 was like. Nineteen thousand or something, but in the average salary of American work was around forty five hundred or something, so it was you know like four times difference so you know so athletes were considered special, of course now it 's like six hundred times more, <laughs> and you know all these guys had summer jobs, they worked in the off season after Robertson you know <laughs> arguably the great one of the greatest players of the era, maybe the best greatest all around player i've ever seen um he, he, he wore that pinstripe Pepsi uniform, working for Pepsi in the summer, traveling around. Um, and, you know, Mel Counts was one of the uh, plaintiffs. He was a backup for uh, Russell and then Wilt for the second half of his career. And he was a guy who came in one of the most famous finals games ever, uh, when, which I wrote about, which Ben Bredekoff, the coach of the Lakers in the 69 game against the Celtics, Russell's last game as a player, uh, Wilt leaves the game like five minutes left, said he hurt his ankle or knee or something. And Baderkoff and they've been feuding with Wilt all season, and he believed Wilt was faking. So then the Lakers come back with um, Mel Counts backing up Wilt coming in the game. So like well, now at two minutes left, the uh, Lakers are within a point. <laughs> Wilt signaling to come back in the game. Dan Brinckoff won't we'll put him back in the game. Won't we'll put Wilt Chamberlain back in the game in L.A. Down one point and uh, Counts plays it out, and the Lakers lose, and, uh, it, you know, I mean, can you imagine something like that in this time? Extraordinary things, um, you know, went on. Dave Bing uh, literally played his entire career, he, you know, with one eye. He, he had a childhood accident. He had a nail go through his eye, and he was too poor living in Washington, D.C., uh, you know, for his parents to take him to get medical help. So he, they just healed it on his own or whatever, didn't heal goes on to a Hall of Fame career. And um um uh, yeah guys the white players told told me about how they had to be a the beer to get a taxi. I mean being bossed in there which was n- not a very understanding city uh racially that the white guy would go out and signal for the cab. Uh incredible circumstances and guys couldn't say anything. There's no guaranteed contracts. Um you know, they were uh, – not not that, you know, Wilt or Russell or Oscar were going to be cut, but, but you also need to remember at the end of his career, the ownership turned on Oscar and, and basically helped run him out of town, and he, that's how he ended up getting traded to Milwaukee. And they had tried to trade him uh, to Baltimore, uh, Bullets uh, later to Washington, and he, asked, he had no trade in his contract, you know, that in that era, and he, you know, which was rare. And so he ended up uh, – uh, employing that. Uh But even then, you know, you could run out a player of Oscar Thatcher. And so um, like I said, just, you know, an, an incredible year. And then of course the ABA uh lore and, you know, Rick Barry, you know, jumping back and forth. And then Spencer Haywood. I go and talk to Spencer Haywood quite a bit also about, you know, his situation. And he of course is the father of the um you know, high school to pro thing. And, uh, but of course, the way the, you know, the, the way the NBA rejected that, uh, he went to court and, and won, but, but yet, uh, immediately before that he was signed by Seattle and he would show up at games and they, and the other team would leave the court. And then the, uh, the owner would order the team off the court saying, "There's an, you know, they in the building, we can't play. And so, uh, uh, just amazing circumstances that uh, these guys endured but stuck with it. Uh, I remember Bill Bradley was one of the plaintiffs. And um, when I went to uh, went around and uh, started talking to the plaintiffs about doing this project, uh, he said, and, of course, Bradley, you know, tremendously successful, uh, three-term U.S. senator. He said, you know, I've been waiting for 30 years for somebody to tell this story. So I really feel, you know, proud to have been able to, to have done that.
0: You know, one guy, obviously, Oscar Robertson, the the namesake of the um of the lawsuit, the you know the players' union president. After you know Tommy Heinsohn had done a lot to you know help get it organized in those early days, taking it over for Bob Cousy, but. You know he was obviously a you know an incredible player, one of the greatest of all time. He probably doesn't really get his due in a lot of ways and has you know kind of spoken out on the modern game and how you know guys from his generation aren't really appreciated. and so forth. But you know, one thing that I hadn't really um read much before and that you talk about is you know how much he, had to sacrifice you know in his post playing career um you know including um you know buffalo braves owner paul snyder pushing him to get fired from um i believe the cbs telecasting at the time um and if you look at you know the players who were you know who are, you know, part of the lawsuit, played this in the lawsuit and, you know, or were involved like in other labor disputes and later, you know, really didn't find much in the way of jobs in the NBA. You know, they were almost exclusively African-American. I mean, Chet Walker, Archie Clark, a lot of guys, you know, and Oscar himself kind of struggled to find jobs in the league, you know, after um, after that was done.
2: No question, you know, guys talk about being blackballed, but, you know, no, no question is ramifications, you know, when, when you do what they did. You know, they stood up to their bosses, and they said, you know, they challenged the status quo, and they won. Yeah, yeah Oscar, uh, he, after he retired, was doing the color commentary for CBS, and, and uh, he got fired from that, you know, because one of the owners complained to the league and said, you know, why do we have a guy uh, representing our league, you know, who sued us? You know, Chet Walker at the end of his career, I think his last season in Chicago, averaged 19 points, and he, and he couldn't get an offer from another team except the Bulls. And then the Bulls owner said, you, "You'll play. You'll play for what I want to pay you uh, because I own you." And uh, you know that was so offensive to, to to these guys, to you know, to anybody. Um, you know, Kurt Flood said the same thing, you know, famously in his suit. You know, he said. You know when you know he made a reference to you know being a slave. You know and people dismissed it because they said, well you're making a hundred thousand dollars. How could you be a slave? You know. But you know, you know the point was they they didn't have freedom of movement that anybody else would have. And then also to be told that. And so you know he ended up he ended up walking away from the game as a result. And. Yeah, uh, a lot of these guys, no, not all of them, you know, obviously Bill Bradley was <laughs> able to have a very productive career, uh, you know, a couple of mixed championship teams. Uh, Wes Unsell, you know, had a good relationship with uh, E. Paul, the owner of the what became the Wizards and um, was a coach and GM there. Uh, but, uh, yeah, there's obviously uh, ramifications for different guys, uh, Elgin Baylor, I had a long tenure with the Clippers, but uh it was, you know, fairly unpleasant, uh, as, we, as we later learned in lawsuits and things like that, uh, and not a lot of opportunity in other places, which, you know, which explains in a lot of reasons why he hung in there despite uh, some of the circumstances. So, um yeah, and you can just imagine, you know, in, 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 in any workplace, if you take this kind of action uh and then succeed, um, there's going to be some hard feelings, and uh you know these guys. And that, that's a that's why I say I circle back to the players in this year. I don't expect the league, and the league has done you know some some you know good things for for a lot of players. You know they bring players in to All Star and Finals games and Russell the awards, and the league has tried. But this is a responsibility of the Players Association. Now, I should say also the Players Association did a great thing in the last CBA where they. Had a provision for medical payments and it's especially for the young retirees, um, and helps them, you know, pre-existing conditions, whatever the case, whatever goes on in uh, the craziness in the government, eh, these, these guys will be protected. And then the older guys, even though they're on Medicare, you know, they'll have supplemental help and things like that, which is, you know, vital. So, so the players finally, um, you know, cast an eye towards some of these players, but, uh, you know, so, so many of them have, have, uh, difficult circumstances beyond that. And, you know, being a pro player, is, you gotta have a strong sense of pride, uh, to fight through all that over career losses and criticism and whatever. These are not, these are not guys who go around with their hand out, but, uh, you know, I wrote about Billy McGill who ended up homeless. You know, a guy was what number one pick broke Wilts records in college, you know, scoring. And so, you know, a lot of guys have. Have uh, have had difficulty over the years, and you know, maybe five or six years ago, in the last labor agreement, uh, this wouldn't be you know as reasonable. But with this incredible you know uh, rights fees that have come into the NBA and the cap and the average salary now about eight million dollars, there's got to be there's got to be uh, an avenue to help these guys. Uh, uh, and, and, and like I say, that, that, that's the thing when you stand back. Um, they knew at the time, you know, when they were fighting this and going through, uh, you know, all all sorts of stalling actions and threats from the league, that none of them would benefit. That um, that whatever came of it, uh, it, their their careers would all be done. Uh, but they did this, you know, for because it was right, and you know, because you know, for the for their fellow players of the future. So, you know, it, just a uh, you know a, a, a tremendous effort on their part
0: so there were in 71 and 72 there were congressional hearings over you know the uh looking at the ABA NBA merger the uh NBA players had you know had fought to prevent that merger you know that was what the robertson's suit was initially about and um they found a much more sympathetic ear than they were expecting uh senator sam sam Irvin, who was uh the chairman of the committee was you know very much uh you know seemed to side with the players and you know gave a lot of a statement in support of the players do you think that there's a um a chance that NBA player rights would not be as strong today if they didn't really, you know, kind of have some leverage from, you know, f- from those feelings in Washington to know that, you know, the uh, the Washington wasn't just going to let this merger, you know, go through without the players, you know, getting what they, you know, should be getting.
2: Absolutely, it it wouldn't have been. Um, it would have folded in just like the AFL folded into the NFL, and it just would have become the NFL NBA monolith. So, well, a lot of the black players who were big scoring stars in college would come into the NBA, and they would make, make role players, you know, defensive players, rebounders, uh, so they could feature you know white players. Now, obviously, you know, that changed with guys like Oscar and you know Earl Monroe. Yeah,
0: what I thought was interesting is um, is Rick Barry, who. Um, you're defecting from the NBA to the ABA, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, kind of escalated the, um, you know, what was going on between the owners and the players during that time but was kind of the a little bit of a contrarian actually during the hearings because he was not really happy in the aba and he actually testified in favor of the merger against what you know most of the players were um you know were were fighting for that was an interesting metaphor just for you know rick berry's personality in general who was you know obviously a brilliant player um you know both intellectually and and on the court but was a guy who you know was was constantly battling i think against almost everybody for for uh most of his career
2: yeah, you know, Rick was a classic "suffer no fools" kind of guy. You know, still comes off that way. A brilliant player that, that's uh, a lot unappreciated. Uh, how, how great a scorer he, he was! Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a, he 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 led sort of led the parade and was one of the influential figures because he was the first one to make the jump to the ABA and, and it, he, you know, when, and that was that became their strategy to get stars and lower stars from the NBA and. And, and the players were able to use that finally, as, uh, finally as having some leverage in negotiations, and that, that, that really changed the economic playing field. But you know, when Rick Rick went to the ABA, the ABA was just a mess. Uh, franchises moving all the time, and uh, you know, underfunded. I mean, the whole the whole idea, just like the AFL owners, was was to start a league so the the, the, N, the NBA would absorb them, and then they would all have NBA teams, and they would become as wealthy as the NBA, but, you know, being the main club, it's like starting a, you know, a small golf club and hoping you, you know, like in Chicago, hoping you can uh, then merge that with Medina or something, <laughs> you know, get in a good club. And so, you know, Rick went over there, but he, and he's, he's saying today, you know, he'll say he regrets having done that. And, you know, he had to sit out years Uh because, you know, players were uh were under this, you know, reserve clause which basically started in, informally in baseball in the late nineteenth century where literally teams would reserve players. You know, they'd pick five or six players and they'd say, Well, they're reserved for my team. Came to be known as the Reserve Clause and incredibly was sanctioned by the US Supreme Court in the early twentieth century, contrary to the uh, antitrust laws of the country, uh, claiming that baseball was not interstate commerce, was, which was nonsense, but the Supreme Court made many, many worse decisions than that. Um, that's true. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, so, so Rick, Rick now realizes that he wants to get back in the NBA and he can't. He can't because uh, you know he signed contracts with the ABA. So when he went to testify, he did this incredible testimony about that that basketball players are paid too much and that it, it, it's obscene that they make so much. You know, and the players, the NBA players, were furious with him. And I always thought that was the genesis of really a lot of the feelings that Rick engendered toward others. It wasn't so much that you know there are guys who are difficult, you know, but it was that he was he, he was he was sort of. By himself, uh, uh, lobbying on behalf of the owners, basically saying. But, but the reason he was doing it because he wanted to get back in the NBA. He couldn't get there because right. he was in the ABA. Ended up sitting out a couple of years, did get back to the NBA. But you know, it was after knee surgery, and he wasn't the same player. But if you saw Rick Barry when he started his career, he was as unstoppable a scorer as there's ever been.
0: Well, Sam, thank you so much for uh, being on the show. You've told a lot of uh, great stories, and there's a lot more uh, great stories in the book. But um, everyone, check out the book, and uh, and thank you so much for taking some time out and, uh, and talking to me. Uh, thanks, everyone, for checking out the show. Uh, you can find us at the StepBack at Fansided We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, uh, Spreaker, TuneIn—pretty much anywhere you uh, want to get your podcast. You can find us there. Uh, if you would leave a rating and review at your favorite platform, we would uh, greatly appreciate it. Uh, like us on Facebook um, at Over and Back NBA. Uh, also on twitter at over and back nba and also follow our uh nba 20 years ago uh, twitter account which is uh also a series that we're a podcast that we're doing i believe the next episode will be the next uh chapter of that saga so we're doing a lot of cool stuff hopefully you are enjoying it and uh thanks for listening we're back again soon